should say former library. I haven't changed that all this time, but I was just thinking it hasn't been a library for a long time. It's been the kids' church room. Christ is risen. There's something about me with Easter where I could just say that for like an hour. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I know that other people get annoyed by it probably, but for me it's just this reminder. It's uh, uh, I've been in Easter services, uh, let's see, I'm 37, so probably 36 times in my life I've been in Easter services. But the only thing I really remember from all of them most of the time, now that I preach I remember a little bit more, but, but uh, <laughs> I'm really slumming the sermon right now, um, is that Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. And the songs that we sing and the ways in which we are lifted up and we proclaim is, is this message that sort of just sits with me in this, that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And, and as many of you know, there's a phrase, or maybe you haven't caught on, but there's a phrase I use every year from, from Pope Benedict, but it goes much older than that, is that the Christians, that we as we are gathered here this morning, we are Easter people and hallelujah is our song. But the church gathered is the Easter people who have a new song. I, it's, it's interesting as, as if you really take time to sit with a short sentence like that. Who are we? We are Easter people. We are resurrection people. We are ones who know that the grave has been defeated, that, that, that God has conquered all things, that forgiveness has been rendered. Who are we? We are Easter people. How do we go out into the world? How do we move into that spot? How do we go? We go as people who sing hallelujah, praise to God. I know that those are, those are simple, obvious messages, but, but they're ones that come to me every Easter, is, is that line and that phrase that he is risen, he is risen indeed. As Paul, in the, in the reading that Jonathan said for us, is that if Christ is only good for us in the present, we're to be scorned above all. But if something else happened, if the Easter news is about something more, then there's more to the story. The story doesn't end there. It opens up a new space. It begins a new time. It starts something um, deeper and much wider. This is, this is something in which we are drawn into. And so this news is news that, that brings us in as actors and proclaims for us something else. It changes the ways in which we function in the world. There's something about knowing that he has risen, he has risen indeed, that can't but help take root in our lives in some way. We may war against it, we may fight against it, we may accept it and move into it, we may live as if forgiveness is the final word, that things are defeated and that, that life has been freed, we may exist as if death has no end. We have all sorts of options we can do for it, but as people gathered here to hear that word, it's meant to draw us out further. In the Gospel of John, and if you, you haven't been here, is we've been walking through the Gospel of John. Every year we sort of start the year with a gospel. This year was Gospel John, and, and, and um, we move through the whole gospel, not, <laughs> not the whole gospel. We pick scenes throughout the gospel to bring us towards Easter, this good news that, that Lori read for us this morning. But earlier in the gospel, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
And anyone who loses their life and that loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. One of the things that we, we come to in this morning is that we admit the darkness of things that are there, that a seed has to fall to the ground and die. You know, what happens, and, and in this community and the communities throughout the world celebrating this news today, is that this seed has sprouted many seeds. Now, there's an image in the bulletin. I think Kelly gave everybody a card, too. Kelly gets very into this. And this is, we, we, we run a full-page ad in the newspaper every year sort of announcing the resurrection on Easter. Um, and so lots of churches run smaller ones during the week saying, come, we have donuts and Easter egg hunts and this, that, and the other. And we decided, you know, let's just announce the good news of the resurrection. And so this line, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed is what runs underneath it. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Part of what we're talking about this morning is the seeds it produces in our lives. But the start of the passage for this morning began with, while it was still dark. While it was still dark, Mary went to the tomb. Now it's easy to think, oh, he's just talking about while it's dark, it's dark outside. But if you look in John's gospel, this this Greek word darkness literally means darkness. (laughs) See, no trick there. Um, uh, Sometimes preachers, uh, you know, we make big things out of words. This word literally means darkness. Um, But this word that means darkness is used multiple times in sort of the Johannine corpus. And so this is is a nerdy thing, but I do this sometimes. This is how often darkness is used in the New Testament in a pie graph. And and the largest portion is the Gospel of John, the orange. The yellow is, is another letter from John, which talks about darkness. And the two others are Matthew and Mark. You would think darkness would show up a lot more. But while it was still dark... Mary goes to the tomb. And what you find is if you look up at all these places where this Greek word comes, this darkness word, is it's often metaphorical. While the light shines in the darkness, the Gospel of John says, and the darkness did not overcome it. Let's put aside the deeds of darkness. Let us cast off darkness. Darkness, in in John's language, isn't just that it was dark outside. It's a simple way to look at it. But what darkness is, in John's language, is, is, is the way that the world is as death reigns. While it was dark outside, Mary went to the tomb. And what I think is, is interesting about this passage and, and the way in which we, we study and, or we go to Easter is we admit the truth about the world. He could have said, while it was sunrise, would have been a more powerful point, perhaps. What he says, while it was dark out, he admits for us that this world still exists in these patterns of darkness. There is darkness around us. There is darkness within us. There is darkness we see as we read newspapers or, uh, sorry, that's like, <laughs> I'm a young person. That's a very dated reference as we read newspapers. Um, uh, as we check CNN.com or, or um, any of your, your news web page of choice, we see a world that's sort of wrapped in darkness. And the story begins with the word that, that while it was still dark, Mary went to the tomb. Our world has this stain in it, the stain in which, which we, in John, it says that the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. 
God removes the stain in this resurrection that's on the world. But it has this stain and it has this pattern and it, and it seems like despair rules at the moment. I mean, there's only so long you can, you can sort of sit with, with looking at the world as it is and its grand picture sometimes and not feel but despair. What else is there after life too? Do we just go through this life with its suffering and its struggles and its trials only to reach its end and to find out that despair was there all along waiting to greet us? You know, death is the sort of the ultimate democracy. It comes for everyone. Death and taxes, I guess. But, but um, the, you know, death is one of those things that's there at the end. And one of the things, there's this, this thing I watch every so often um, it, it is a Lucy K is on Conan O'Brien, and Lucy K, this now disgraced comedian, but he's talking about cell phones and why he doesn't want his kids to have cell phones. And one of the things he talks about in that in that is that he, we don't feel when this thing wells up in us. He's like this icky, sick thing. We instantly reach for our phones, and he says even when we're driving, we're doing it. He says a hundred percent of people are texting and driving. We're all killing each other because the second this thing of loneliness and despair rises within us, we have the most effective society to self-medicate it. You can pick up your phone at night. You can pick up a book. You can turn on the TV. As many people use it as a talking lamp to survive their days. You can reach out and talk to someone too. You can, you can find all these ways in which you can sort of medicate yourself to keep this feeling at bay. Yet what he says is he's driving and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on the radio, uh, one where Bruce just groans um, and that sounds like Bruce Springsteen to me, not being a fine yet, as Shelley says. That's all of them. That's what Conan O'Brien says, too. You could do his job. That's all of them. And he feels this urge to sort of just weep, and, and the sadness will up on him. And he grabs his phone, and he says, no, I'll just sit with it. And he pulls over on the side of the road and just weeps. And he's like, and it's, it's, it's interesting because your body, he says, fights it back eventually. As you sit in the darkness, you begin to sort of get lifted as well. And so we find this in our lives is that we, we can push the darkness completely as much as we want away and self-medicate and reach for our phones and, and talk to people and, and try to stay. And, and we don't even really move to light as much as much as we try to stay in this medium place of we're okay, we're fine. But he says when we sit there, we find that our bodies actually sort of lift us up out of it. And this is part of the challenge of the world today is that while it is still dark, can we acknowledge that? Can we hear that while it was still dark? And while it was still dark, Mary goes and tells the disciples that they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And this is one of the more comical parts of the New Testament, is the beloved disciple who's being referred to in this passage, most people think is the author of the Gospel of John. First off, you get away with calling yourself the beloved disciple when all the other people are dead. And so most people think the Gospel of John is the last written gospel, right? And so he gets to say the disciple who Jesus loved because everybody else is like, well, can't correct him. We've passed on into the next life. But what's even funnier is he ramps up this game a whole nother level with this race towards the tomb. If you were listening, you can hear it again. But, but uh, So Peter and the other disciple just started for the tomb. But while they were running, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the term first, the first stab that he's faster. He bent over and looked in at the strips of landing there, but did not go in. Then Peter came along behind him, 
another dig at Peter, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as the cloth had been laid, wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still laying at its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is, it's getting, <laughs> he's laying it on thick in that he's faster than Peter, um, also went inside, and he saw and believed. And then the disciples went back to where they were saying. I find that passage funny, but there's this, there's this rush for the tomb between the two of them. And when they get there, Peter just barges in, as we find in this character of who he is. And the other disciple goes in, and they see these strips of linen laying there. They see the, the left of the tomb. And, and we'll talk about these seven signs in the sermon in a minute. But, but if you remember Lazarus, when he rose from the dead, he's wearing the clothes of death. He's wearing what he was wrapped in. He's still wrapped in the shrouds of death. And what we find in Jesus' resurrection is that that which he was wrapped in, that which was death, has been cast off. So there's something different here, right? See, Jesus, Lazarus' resurrection, I think we, we, we would be more properly called a resuscitation. Lazarus is one who is dead but is now alive. Jesus is one who is dead but is now alive to God. He lives and is with God. In John's language, and, and Mary tries to grab him, he says, I have yet to ascend to the Father. He ascends to the highest place. And so Lazarus comes back and they have a joyous celebration for he who was dead is now alive. But with Christ, he who is dead is not just alive, but is resurrected in a state that he lives to God. And what he does, and this is what he says at the end, is my father and my God and your God, is he sh shares, turns and shares that relationship with us that he makes a way for us to be enjoined as one who lives to God and his who is not dead. He's one whom the garments of death have been cast off. He's one whom these garments are no longer clothed over him. But the disciples go back to their home and Mary stays at the tomb. And first she looks inside and, and there's a I love looking up what early commentators say about this. Gregory the Great in the first or second or third century talks about how love looks more than once. She looks in the tomb again. For the force of love intensifies the search. Mary in her grief looks in the tomb again. And while it was still dark, there's this place for grief in this gospel. As we as our Easter people and hallelujah as our song is not meant to wash away the grief that still exists in the world, the pain that's still there. It's interesting, there's two angels there and this is not typical for angels, but they ask the question, woman, why are you crying? Now you can hear that in all sorts of different ways. First off, if you, if you have a Bible, woman is always asterisked with, does not connotate disrespect. So it's not, woman, why are you crying? Um, it, it, you don't have to read it that way as we would in the modern world. It means he's addressing her as woman. Why are you crying? These two angels ask. And again, Mary is, is distraught over that she can't find the body of the Lord. She stands there in this emptiness, and it's this emptiness in this tomb that has yet to be filled. And so someone comes up from behind her, and she turns around, and this person asks, 
Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? It's an odd question to ask at an empty tomb. Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried away, tell me where you put him. Here she is in her grief, and what happens is, is Jesus says to her, Mary, he calls her name, and she turned into him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. In his resurrected state, he still is personable in his sharing and turning towards us. He is the one she knows as teacher. She clings to his feet or clings to him somewhere because he says, don't hold on to me, which is not don't touch me, but don't hold on to me. And yet her, her sadness and grief is turned to joy. One of my favorite passages in John's gospel is this one, is, is very truly I tell you and you will m- m- weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Mary is found in weeping and mourning. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now your time of now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Like that Jesus compares this to that there's not pain. There's pain, there's anguish. There is this moment in which all seems lost. There's a woman giving birth, the child has pain, but when her baby comes into the world, when this new thing comes into life, the pain is forgotten because something new has been born. And so this is the news that Mary receives at the tomb, is that, is that he, cry, he calls her by her name. And, and it's instant, John's gospel expands in these passages. Jesus says, is that if you notice in the image, that the cross, there's the tree growing up, which is the many seeds, but the cross beam is, is the shepherd's crook. And Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and that his sheep will hear his voice and know his voice. And he will call them by name. Here what happens is that he calls to Mary. She hears his voice. He's the good shepherd whom he calls. And so too it is for us to hear his voice in the darkness and to have our grief at times transclipsed into joy, to be made into joy. This is what happens here in this gospel. He calls them by name. But one of the things that I want to sort of sort of end with is this idea of new creation is is this is um sometimes i look at these and i'm like how much do i need to explain this this is seven lines with a bracket and the number seven underneath it this is (laughs) there are seven signs that make up the first half of john's gospel there are these signs that point to what jesus has done there's seven of these signs and now if you were a jewish reader of the text or if you're somebody who's read the old testament seven is this number of completeness it's this number that's deeply tied to creation it's this number that brings out sabbath rest and so there's these seven signs which we walked through back in january and february in john's gospel In John 2, he turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. In John 4, he heals the official son. At John 5, he heals a man born lame at the pool. 
in John 6, he multiplies bread. And you can see these signs building, right, to feed 5,000. In John 6, he also walks on water. And in John 9, he heals a blind man. The blind receives sight. In John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. So that brings us to John 20. So we have seven signs, and then we have this eighth sign. It's one of the things that, as, as, as I was talking about, is, is while it was still dark, she came to the tomb. I missed or didn't talk about early on the first day. Early on the first day, this new sign happens. This sign of new creation. This sign that Paul, in the passage that Jonathan read, he calls the first fruits of this new creation. The first things born into this new world. This is the old creation has dealt in death and the new creation deals in life. The third, be, third day begins a new age. It begins a new world. And we can live in thankfulness and not in the fear of death. This eighth day sign for us is the sign of new life and of new creation. That Jesus begins something new in his rising from the dead. A whole new world is born. A whole new creation is given. A whole new, uh, these seeds are the seeds of what will be a great harvest at the end. Our next sermon series is on the creed, which is like a, an ad, an ad in the sermon. Next week we start the creed. Um, but it says, uh, and we proclaim the mystery of the faith here every week, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We exist as the first fruits, but not the fullness of this thing. We see in a mirror dimly. We see imperfect, imperfectly. We still exist in a time where you can say it's still dark at times. And yet what the Gospels proclaim for us through Jesus' word and what the New Testament proclaims through the letters is that, that we don't hope for what we already have. But there's a return, there's a fulfillment, fulfillment of this day coming. We exist in the bridge between the times. We exist in this moment in which we are sort of between the fulfillment and, and, and the, the beginning of it. The seeds that fall aren't the full-grown fruits of this world. But they're the beginning of, the blooming of this resurrection life in the midst of what's passing, passing and fading away. So we are brought into new life. The back of your bulletin, there's a quote from an old sermon by John Christendom. It's a tradition I started last year, but what's, what, what I became to the realization is, first off, when I used to sit through Easter sermons, I was like, how hard is this? And as an associate pastor, which I was for six years, you never get to preach Easter. I got Palm Sunday down, though, I'll tell you that much. Um, and the Sunday after Easter occasionally too. Never Easter. And I was like, how hard is this? And so uh, when I came here, I, my first one, I was like, that was bad. Um, it is apparently way harder than I thought it was to proclaim the goodness of the resurrection in a way. Uh, it's simple, and yet you get drawn into all these ways to make it so complex. And so one of the things that we, I try to do is read this very old sermon that, that many church traditions will read together today. It's, it's, it's not long, um, uh, because it, it, if, it, if they've been reading it for 1,800 years, it can't be as bad as what I did. And so at least we can hear this good news from this one. 
Um, and I'll start a portion of the way through, but to hear these words from John Christendom, who I think proclaims this news in a strong way for us. Come you all, enter with, into the joy of the Lord. You the first and the last, receive alike your reward. You rich and poor, dance together. You sober and weakling, celebrate the day. You have kept the fast, and you who have not, rejoice today. The table is richly loaded. Enjoy its royal banquet. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. All of you enjoy the banquet of faith. All of you receive the riches of goodness. Let no one grieve his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep over his sins, for pardon has shone from the grave. Let no one fear death. The death of your Savior has, has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has despoiled Hades by going down into its kingdoms. He has angered it by allowing it to taste its flesh. When Isaiah first saw this, he cried, O Hades, you have been angered by encountering him in the netherworld. Hades is angered because it is frustrated. It is angered because it has been mocked. It is angered because it has been destroyed. It is angered because it has been reduced to nothing. It is angered because it is now captive. It seized a body and lo, encountered heaven. It seized the visible and was overcome by the invisible. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you are abolished. Christ is risen, and the demons are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is freed. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of death. For Christ, being raised from the dead, has become the leader and the reviver of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. He is risen. Let us pray. God, you have called us into the darkness of this day. We are like Mary coming to the tomb in the dark. Our world still carries darkness in it. And like her, we can stand and weep in the trials of this world, of the dysfunction. So much anger, so much war, so much addiction, so much death, so much abuse. And yet we can find today and every day is that you call us by name. We can hear your voice and find that you are inviting us into a relationship with the one you call Father. That, that Father would be our Father. The one that you call God and Lord would be our Lord. That we would be intimately connected as seeds of this new creation and new world. People who know the power of forgiveness. People who know that life and love are stronger than death. People who know the good news of your resurrection life. For on this day and all days as we go forth, we are Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. Amen.